Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaHealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods and I'm your host today. We have um, a very nice dynamic show. We're going to be talking about how to achieve clinical excellence in behavioral health care with two people who I'm sure most of you, um, you certainly know their work if you don't know them in person. Um, our first guest today is going to be Gary Enos, who has been the editor of the Addiction Professional Magazine since the publication's debut in 2003. He has covered clinical management and public policy issues in the addiction and mental health fields as a reporter and editor since 1994. Prior to his work in behavioral health, Gary covered state and local government issues for a national trade publication and also worked as a daily newspaper journalist. He is a graduate of Brown University and received a master's degree in journalism for from Northwestern University. Joining us also um, will be Dennis Grantham, who is the editor-in-chief of Behavioral Healthcare Magazine, a business publication and website that serves the needs of executives and senior medical, clinical, information technology, and operations staff who develop and deliver mental health and substance abuse disorder treatment. Behavioral Healthcare Magazine covers policy, management, technology, funding, and treatment trends that affect the availability, quality, and funding of mental health and substance use treatment services nationwide. Dennis was trained as a journalist at the Allegheny College and went on to earn his master's degree in technical and professional writing at Carnegie Mellon University. Before joining Behavioral Healthcare Magazine, he managed corporate communications, public relations for technology, and manufacturing companies. Welcome, Dennis and Gary, to our show today. Thank you for the opportunity, Mary. Hello, Mary. Hello. Um, I would invite our audience to call in if you have any questions for us. And if you download this after um, our show has been on the air, um, both Gary and Dennis will leave you with an um, email address that you can um, send questions directly to them. So, um, Gary, I, I'd like to start by just by kind of updating our audience with the overview of where are we right now in terms of health care for um, addictive disorders and mental illness. Well, Mary, thank you again for this opportunity. Uh, this is a very important time in the field. We continue to really grapple with the amazing treatment gap between the number of people who need services and those who receive them, and that has been a perennial issue in the addiction treatment field, which is the primary of the fields that I cover. Um, they still estimate that about 20 million people um, need treatment but do not receive these services. And uh, according to the most recent national survey on drug use and health, only about 2%, just under 2% of those individuals who need treatment um, uh, actually felt that they needed it and then pursued it. So 
we're really still only reaching probably a very small sliver of the number of individuals out there who could benefit from the services that the field provides. And I think what's happening is people are coming to the realization that there's a lot of change needed in the way services are delivered and in the way they have to be much more integrated. Um, it seems that what's happening is that people are realizing that many of these individuals who the field, who the specialty field is missing should be coming in or can be reached through the primary care system in some way, shape, or form. And so you're beginning to see much more, and we're covering a lot more in our publications, of integrated efforts where behavioral health and primary care are working in concert and, and really trying to coordinate their efforts in a more comprehensive fashion. Um, there seem to be more tools now for primary care providers to provide some form of substance use services. Uh, you hear the acronym SBIRT a lot these days, which stands for Screening, Brief Intervention, and Referral to Treatment. And what's happening now is that physicians are becoming increasingly comfortable. I wouldn't say as a group that they're still fully comfortable, but they're becoming increasingly comfortable with the notion that there are some screening tools that are readily available to them that can help them address substance use issues in their patient population, something that they probably never would have asked about in the past and maybe now are being a little more inclined to do so. So I think what that provides is a real opportunity for behavioral health providers, both addiction and mental health, to partner and to find ways in their communities to align with primary care and to offer more comprehensive services and have an avenue to reaching some of these critical people who are, who are, who've been missing for a long time. You know, when, when we think about the history of treatment for addictive disorders, this is almost like coming full circle in some ways because back in the day when um, Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson um, got sober, they relied very heavily on the medical community. Um, just because they were both so physically dependent, they needed to have medical supervision to withdraw. But um, Dr. Silkworth, Dr. Silkworth and um, Sister Ignatius and all those folks were crucial to um, people getting treatment for alcoholism. Absolutely. And, and one of the, and interestingly, um, we had a, uh, in our National Conference on Addiction Disorders back in uh, September in San Diego, we had a closing uh, speech from Tom Fries from the UCLA Integrated Substance Abuse Programs and from the Pacific Southwest ATPC. And he really stressed the idea that if, if, beha- if behavioral health providers are not familiar with the term FU- FQHC, Federally Qualified Health Center, that they really need to, those who serve a public client really need to get on board and understand that the federally qualified health centers are getting a lot of financial support, that they're sort of the locus for primary care services for the public sector population, and that this is a real opportunity for specialty providers to have involvement, to have access to some of these clients, and to probably be more plugged into what are going to be the health care homes that we keep hearing about in health reform. And I know, for instance, that... Uh, Dennis sees that on the mental health side as well, where there's a lot of discussion of how best to align and integrate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say um, there, much of the conversation that Gary's offered uh, with regard to um, integrating primary health care and uh, mental health treatment is is very similar um, on the on the mental health side of the behavioral health care spectrum, and. Um, it, the, the one key key issue, though, that comes up sometimes is that um, uh, 
sometimes if there are serious behavioral disorders or serious mental illness, um, you know, a lot of providers go back and forth between these being mental health providers, between um, whether or not they want to send uh, their um, mentally ill patients to a doctor's office, a primary care office, or somehow bring the primary care office right in on site. Um, and depending on, um, you know, the, the condition that individuals are in, um, you know, some of them do, in fact, choose to bring the primary care right on site. So the individual doesn't have to travel anywhere else. It's not complicated or, um, uh, uh, you know, a lot of those little issues and stuff go away. So um, that's really the the one angle that I would add to what Gary said is that co-locating or bringing it all together with primary care is a little bit more, um, it has some different considerations on the mental health side of things. It would seem that on the addiction side, um, the, the idea of broaching these subjects with a with an individual for perhaps the first time, if you can link that with then giving them the, the real-time opportunity to see a, an addiction counselor or, or some specialist the same day that these issues are first being discussed with or, or close to the same day, if not the same day, as these issues are being discussed with the patient just seems like a real potent uh, opportunity and, and certainly a, a good argument for co-locating services, as Dennis said. Um, uh, our current issue of Addiction Professional had an article on the treatment organization Marworth and their experiences in actually housing a counselor for several hours a week directly at the medical clinics of their parent health care organization. And this helped not only to identify those with addiction, but to provide some continuity of care so that you don't lose these individuals and, and, and hope that they're just going to make an appointment or see someone, you know, days later and, and follow up uh, in a fashion that maybe they're not, you know, going to be able to do. So it seems like from an efficiency standpoint, I think co-located services on both sides are probably going to be um, a much more favored option. Well, it seems like being able to treat the whole person in one in one spot is advantageous to the individual who has either mental illness or addictive disorders or both, that um, it, it kind of makes sense to treat the whole body at the same time because, you know, for I guess since managed care, we've kind of severed the head off and, you know, here's one system that treats, you know, everything from your ears and above and the other system treats everything from the ears down, thinking that these two components of our bodies aren't connected. Yeah, that's that's very much the case, Mary, and um, the the issue, I think, managed care works fine for people who are really motivated to get care or, or who have the ability to go out and get it for themselves, and, and uh, sometimes for others, if, you're a, uh, if there are substance abuse or mental health problems, it, it is a lot harder to, um, uh, to go out and just, in some very practical sense, go out and get those services for yourself or travel to different places involved. Um, one of the things that I would comment, comment on that's coming together, you spoke about uh, taking care in one place and um, uh, the notion of a health home or a place where you can go to have everything taken care of isn't so much a physical thing in most cases as it is a, um, a sense that there's a single sort of virtual team of people uh, who are taking care of you and that all of them have access to a, um, a similar version of your medical information, i.e. sharing an electronic chart or something like that, 
where they're all working from the same game plan. So, um, you know, a lot of that talk about help homes and things like that um, really implies sort of a virtual team rather than, uh, in every in every case, a, a similar location. And I think. What? What's I was going to say, Mary, I think another thing that the integrated health care will, will, will offer on the addiction side is that it will give people more of an opportunity to treat individuals at a possibly lower or more intermediate level of acuity of their, of their, of their issue, which can be advantageous in maybe making care more cost-effective, because I think the specialty sector is very equipped to handle people at the really dependent highest level of acuity of, of, of illness, whereas through, through the primary care venue, you're probably going to see people along a much longer continuum, and I think that's going to give more opportunity to see people and to, and to use our expertise as a field to, to help people at perhaps not a, a full-blown issue, but at an issue that is risky or difficult or heading toward a crisis or a disaster. So I think that's another way that hopefully the field is going to get at that just vast gap in, in, in services with that huge number of people who don't receive care. Um, thank you, and we'll be right back after this commercial to talk more with Dennis and Gary. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. There are a number of health and social services available to individuals for low cost or no cost. Now there's a radio program devoted to bringing you the information you need. Tune in to Outreach Today with host Melissa Jenkins-Simon. Our program promotes the benefits and services of CI Incorporated, providing health and social services over a wide spectrum of resources and agencies. We want to help you. Tune in to Outreach Today, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and 
today we're talking about um, how to achieve clinical excellence in behavioral health care with um, Gary Enos, who is the uh, editor of Addiction Professional Magazine, and Dennis Grantham, who is the editor-in-chief of Behavioral Health Care Magazine. In the first segment, we really talked about how um, the the whole concept of um, a medical home and being able to treat uh, an individual in one place with an electronic record that it was kind of a virtual team so that regardless of where in the community you were being treated, people would have access to that, um, that, that electronic medical record, would certainly provide excellence in care for, for anyone. And, um, and I think it's a really great idea. I'd just like to, to kind of talk a little bit with you, Dennis, about um, the reality of that, because I know that I know we at Westbridge we work with people with co-occurring disorders, and while we have resources, there's not a good self software package out there that provides. You can get really good mental health software, you can get really good uh, addiction software, but to get co-occurring software, it's really tough. That has the prescribing package with it that that we really need, and then there are a lot of agencies that people are still sharing two computers and can't even afford the software. So. So can you just share with our audience, where are we with this? Well, um, Mary, I would, um, your first comment about uh, the sorts of packages that are needed, um, as, you, as you are probably aware, there are, there are a good number of uh, companies, there are probably 50 companies that make some sort of electronic health record that, are, that, that, that orient or try to orient their operations and their content toward behavioral health, i.e. mental health care and addiction treatment or family services. And each year we do a survey of, of those companies in Behavioral Health Care magazine. And, you know, for example, we did it in September this year. Um, I, uh, I wouldn't say that we looked into the issue of co-occurring disorders uh, and who, who, who has a good package for that. However, um, more and more companies are the, in the industry, of course, are working toward the um, the objective of um, supporting their customers in in the adoption and meaningful use of electronic health records. And among other among other things, that long term means that they're going to be able to uh, capture and store uh, a series of approximately twenty. Uh, medical requirements or medical pieces of information in their chart along with some uh, some optional pieces of information that the individual providers can choose. And um, uh, a lot of those are still pretty medical-oriented at this time. Uh, there's uh, the, the discussion of behavioral health is, you know, addiction and mental health issues are still somewhat limited in the development of those systems. So, um, I, uh, that's a quick overview of it. I'm sure you have another question or something on that. Well, I, um, at the National Conference on Addictive Disorders, Dr. Wesley Clark was there from SAMHSA, and he was talking in great length about um, the need for a computerized medical record. And then he asked people in the audience, how many of you have access to a computerized medical record? And I would say maybe a third of the people raised their hand. Mm-hmm. Well, there's um, one of the theme stories that we worked on uh, for September was uh, for our information technology survey and this issue that we did was um, the fact that when it comes to IT, 
in behavioral health care, there are, it's definitely a case of the haves and the have-nots. Now, um, almost everybody's got some kind of electronic technology working for them in the field, uh, but usually what happens is you start with it on the, on the billing or financial end where it's tied to your, your cash flow or your appointments or, you know, whatever it is that, that keeps your office running, and you end up sort of backing up into the medical side of things, into the medical records, and all of the issues that are used to, um, you know, collect the information that supports a claim or whether it's a public, i.e., Medicare or Medicaid-type claim or a private insurance claim. And um, uh, a, lot of, a lot of providers uh, in, in mental health, I would say something on the order of half of the providers in mental health have some kind of technology infrastructure that's, that's growing. And, what about um, an addiction? Do you know? Well, an addiction, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's that strong because there have been so many um, there have been so many small organizations that do addiction treatment, and um, you know, depending on how the field evolves, sometimes those they're almost really community type organizations rather than you know really sophisticated medical ones in some cases. So. I would I would add to that, Dennis. That yeah, definitely. I think the the observation that Mary had at the national conference could be very reflective of the more addiction focused audience of that group, and the fact that they really, in a lot of cases, have not uh, have been a few steps behind even the mental health community. Which is one thing I would say. I would say to addiction treatment providers that that um, getting some intelligence from their colleagues in mental health at conferences at at other events is probably a good a good idea. When when we featured an article on electronic uh, health records uh, in December of 2010, uh, written by uh, um, a gentleman with a treatment uh, center in, in Minnesota. Um, he talked about just the real dizzying array of options that that his facility, which did eventually purchase a system, uh, ran across when they were going through the bidding process, and 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 a lot of minefields for the addiction treatment centers, particularly small ones, as you say, because small ones might really run the risk of over purchasing. For one thing, um, it, it can be a scenario where the kind of system that a certain size center needs just may be way beyond the needs and 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 efficiencies of a of a smaller treatment program. And then, of course, there's also still the case to be made in a lot of these addiction facilities for doing the upfront expense at all because um, it's not looked at by some individuals as improving the bottom line in a sufficient way or, or, or having the same impact as other expenses might have for an organization. So I think really addiction treatment centers uh, need to just collect a lot of information and probably even look to their mental health counterparts for, for some guidance uh, because I think they're probably a couple steps ahead. You know, one of my experiences has been um, having worked in a mental health um, agency as well as, as my own is that for me the problem with the, an electronic record, it's it's driven by billables. It's not driven by by what's good medical care. So as Dennis was saying, it gets built around the financial end of the business, and then the medical gets superimposed on it as opposed to the other way around. And if you're, if you're in a in state or an agency where, you know, you're being encouraged to do a recovery-oriented um, form of treatment, then, you know, we get reimbursed based on level of illness, not level of recovery. So that becomes a real sticking point because your chart has to reflect the illness in order to get reimbursed by Medicaid, Medicare, or the insurance company. But the 
but the culture and what you're being told is that this is a recovery-oriented system, and and they don't match. Well, um, Mary, I think people are working hard on that, and um, uh, the idea that I think vendors are working hard, uh, the the software vendors are working hard to put in the rearview mirror the idea that, that systems are driven by money instead of care. I know one of the things uh, that uh, Dr. Clark also mentioned in his discussions at NCAD, and I had a couple of follow-up discussions with him, uh, was that um, there's going to be some more work, I believe, in January in, in, in the government about what types of uh, behavioral health care information, you know, mental health and addiction treatment information might need to be kept in a what's called a continuity of care document, and that's a that's a, a segment of an electronic health record that would be specific to behavioral health. So people are working hard on these problems, and um, I, I would say that, uh, again, companies that have or organizations that have adopted uh, these uh, behavioral health records, people swear by them or they swear at them, but, but they, um, those who adopted them uh, would do so with or without government incentives in many cases because for them it just makes total sense. And uh, as as more organizations move away from uh, grant funding toward, you know, in any kind of healthcare reform, it's going to be more and more of a claim-oriented system where you have an individual who gets a service who makes a claim. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be well nigh impossible to to manage a claims-oriented system like that with with paper records alone. It, that's just asking a lot. So I, I think that this technology is coming our way uh, real soon, and I, I uh, again, it'll be motivated in part by the ability to get payment, but I think that people will find there's a lot of other conveniences that are associated once they learn it. And then I think the other factor that's going to be very potent for the addiction field is the continuing discussion of confidentiality protections in the federal regulation and what impact that has on uh, sharing of records, sharing of information, and there's been guidance from SAMHSA on that in, in recent months. There'll probably be more guidance coming down. There have been forces in the field that have wanted 42 CFR Part 2 to be weakened. Uh, there have been others who've said that this is still very valid, including SAMHSA itself uh, backing the fact that this is that, that the special protections for substance use-related information are important to preserve. So. I think that's going to continue to be an issue that the field needs to have um, some some uh, dialogue on and, and involvement in. Well, you know, yeah. I, in addition to like um, the computerized record, I think that um, to achieve really good excellence in clinical care, we have to have um, a well-educated and a well-trained workforce. And I'm kind of shifting topics here because it's. It, I've had a couple, I've had a lot of experiences over the last 30 years, but one of them, which was kind of um, uh, really brought home to me, was that I worked in an ML health center, and in the outpatient um, setting, part of the medical screening was the cage, you know, the the four-question cage uh, screening tool. And um, when people presented someone at intake, those questions were never reviewed. And um, so part of my job was to go to the meetings and say, what about alcohol use? What about drug use? And that's basically all I said for the whole case conference because 
people weren't asking the questions. If, if they if they were asking the questions, they weren't doing anything with it. And if if they had the information, they didn't know what to do with it. And um, when we get back, I want to talk a little bit more about that after our commercial. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to our show today. Our guests are Dennis Grantham, who is the editor-in-chief of Behavioral Healthcare Magazine, and Gary Enos, who is the editor of Addiction Professional Magazine. And before going to break, I was talking about part of achieving excellence in behavioral health care is um, having a well-educated and well-trained workforce. And, um, you know, I I think that that we are so lacking. I mean, we were just beginning to develop national standards for uh curriculum, a national curriculum for uh, addiction professionals. You know, mental health, there's always, there's been a well-developed curriculum for social workers and behavioral um, oh, uh, licensed mental health counselors, marriage and family therapists, n- nurses and doctors have all had this robust and long-standing curriculum and, and training, and, and the addiction world is just kind of getting to that. So can both of you kind of share with our audience a, a little bit about what we need to do for workforce development? Well, I think, Mary, that um, what you pointed out regarding the move to standardizing the curriculum and and create and, and the creation, which happened in 2010, of the uh, National Addiction Studies Accreditation Commission, these are really critical trends for the addiction field in terms of really understanding what the various levels of professional expertise are, what qualifications an individual must have to, to be um, designated as such, and I think also what's going to be happening with a lot of this is the move toward more licensure of addiction counselors uh, in various states. Some of that's happened already. A lot of it is still hung up in debate and discussion, but, but it will happen to a lot greater degree. 
And obviously, licensure is not going to happen without really strict academic standards. And this is an area that NADAC, uh, the organization that you've been a leader in, has had some, some very good leadership on. Um, it just seems that the addiction field needs to catch up with a lot of the other disciplines, such as marriage and family therapy, social work, et cetera, in terms of really understanding what the curriculum needs to look like to then lead to the professional status of the individual once they get into the field. And uh, I think what's going to happen is you're going to be seeing a lot more of an adoption of a professional identity for the addiction professional through the uh, improvements in higher education, through being accredited as a higher education institution for addiction studies, and then having a much more level playing field professionally where someone who's called the various titles within the field, you can rely on them having a certain set of knowledge. Well, um, I know in the in the area of uh, mental health care, there's always been a sort of a traditional alignment where you have psychiatrists, i.e. prescribers, on one side. And in fact, um, psychiatrists are very much joined by uh, primary care physicians in terms of um, not... Uh, primary care doesn't always diagnose a lot of conditions, but they do... Uh, write an awful lot of prescriptions, something like two out of every three prescriptions for a mental health-related uh, uh, medication or treatment is written by primary care. And for the most part, of course, that it comes into areas like depression or major depression or um, perhaps maintenance of some other things that, that a um, psychiatrist has prescribed. Um, within this field, though, um, there's always been a little bit of a division between the psychiatrist and the psychologist. One is very much MD, uh, medically trained, and and the others are, you know, offer that very much social work and counseling orientation. And um, there's still a bit of a, a of a divergence there into all the specialties. Um, and I, I think it again it, it it centers around the area of prescribing, and. Um, uh, with the coming of health care reform, I think that um, those who um, have some of the lesser credentials may be pressed by things like insurance companies. For example, if more and more organizations or more and more people are covered by health insurance, insurers tend to have fairly high credentialing standards for the, uh, for the types of people and procedures they pay for. And... Um, you know that that may serve to bump up the level of, um, or or to sort of de facto require a higher level of, of training than than some have. You know, some with masters may have to upgrade, and certainly those below masters level, uh, it it might be a concern for them in some areas in terms of being able to be the provider of particular treatments. I think the other thing I think about a lot with workforce development, Mary, is the whole importance of uh, meeting the self-care needs of, of these professionals who work very hard, sometimes under not the best conditions, and certainly not to get rich because this is not a field that people go into to uh, make uh, scads of money. And, and, and I think what we're going to see is if we can improve some of the care models 
for uh, addictive disorders. I think they'll. I think for one thing, people will see better outcomes in their clients, and they won't be as considered as frustrating a uh, situation where people may be just seeing the the failures as opposed to the successes. You're you're seeing a lot of treatment organizations now reinforcing the importance of involving their alumni in services. That's going to create more longstanding relationships between program alumni and and programs. You're going to see people who are succeeding. You're going to see people involved as peers. They're going to um, help the cause for the for the newly recovering person, and I think I think what hopefully the workforce development issue will also be wrapped up in the issue of better self care and better um, less burnout or or compassion fatigue for uh, clinicians because that's certainly a, a critical issue for this profession. Well, it seems like one of our biggest challenges, um, and it's reflective in the Addiction Professional Magazine, some of the editorials, is, you know, we don't seem to be able to come to consensus about what what's recovery and what's sobriety. And, you know, on, on one hand, it's, you know, you're only sober if you're not taking any type of mood-altering or addictive medication. And then there's the other um, side of the aisle that, is supportive of opiate replacement therapy or if you are being treated for something and you require um, a steroid or something like that, then, you know, that's considered to be part and parcel of your recovery. And as long as you're not abusing it and take it as prescribed, then you're okay. So, you know, mental health doesn't have those kind of struggles, you know, um, uh, primary care doesn't have that kind of struggle. If you have chronic lung, lung disease or you have diabetes, there's different levels of treatment and there's different levels of um, wellness. And, um, and and why is it such a struggle in our profession? Well, I think it's it's certainly been debated quite a lot in the past year or two on our pages and in our LinkedIn forum, and, and it's, it's not an area that's easy to answer and, and to come to a consensus on. But I think uh, you know we've tried to be a very open forum to uh, telling people that the research is showing that there are other factors that are really probably much more important to success than what modality of treatment is used. Uh, you know, the, a lot of the research shows that the quality of the relationship and bond between the clinician and the client is very important, no matter whether that clinician is doing motivational interviewing or cognitive behavioral therapy or whether it's a physician who's prescribing uh, uh, buprenorphine in their office. The other, the other uh, factor, of course, is that time spent in treatment and the ability to have some kind of extended uh, services has a real impact on outcomes. So we've really tried to reinforce that and, and, and to also reinforce some of the similarities among various types of treatment. I think people think that all of these types of treatment are just completely diametrically different, and a lot of them, a lot of the talk therapies and, and, and even the 12-step therapies uh, have some similar language and similar concepts. So we've tried to reinforce in our coverage that, you know, CBT, AA, MI, uh, they're not completely divergent and, and, and should be looked at as just one or the other or, or not all or nothing kind of proposition. And then certainly on the medication side, medication treatments in this field have become you know very critical in the past few years on both the alcohol and, and opiate category and clearly probably the two medications that, that we've written about the most because they've had the most buzz have been uh, Suboxone, uh, one of the formulations of buprenorphine on the opiate addiction side, and then of course Vivitrol, the uh, 
monthly injection formulation of the anti-alcohol medication naltrexone, which which actually also has an opiate indication now as well. And and these, particularly on the Suboxone side, because of its nature and and the fact that it's a replacement therapy, um, certainly continues to be controversial in the field, and we've had a lot of coverage. Uh, people, there are treatment providers that won't use Suboxone for maintenance, that think Suboxone as maintenance is not recovery, as you alluded to, Mary. And and I think what we've begun to see is that more prominent voices in the field, um, as yourself, are saying that these debates have to be modulated in some way and that people have to come to some sort of uh, understanding that all of these strategies are important. Uh, we hear oftentimes of addiction being referred to as a biopsychosocial spiritual illness, and that's four different elements, all of which need to be addressed in the individual. So um, I think it's a slow process at getting at that consensus, and we may not get everyone to ever agree, but I believe some of the more potent indicators of success, like time and treatment, like uh, rapport with uh, a clinical professional or a helping professional, need to be highlighted, maybe more than the differences between the various modes of uh, treatment. We, we seem to be a profession that likes to circle the wagons and shoot inward. No doubt. <laughs> no doubt. And and, I, and a lot of people are, are putting their, you know, foot down and saying, you know, we, we had an article a few months ago where Charles O'Brien, one of the leading researchers in the field, said if you're discouraging people from taking medications, you're behaving in an unethical way. That was a quote of his. And that's a controversial statement, but it gives one pause to to realize that maybe there's a difference between one's uh, perception of what medications are in this field and then the reality of the fact that there are some people for whom this may be a necessary uh, strategy. Well, I think it's really important because not every not everybody who has hypertension gets treated with the same type of medication, and not everybody with hypertension gets treated with medication. The same thing with diabetes, and and it just boggles my mind because I am a nurse that that people could think that there's only one treatment strategy or one mode of treatment that's going to be effective with a brain disease. That's not true for any other illness, and um, and I think it just it provides a disservice to the person who is who is suffering from the addictive disorder, you know, people with mental illness have a wide range of opportunities for different types of treatment interventions. And and mm-hmm. with people with addictive disorders, it's like everybody's own personal bias gets in the way of of rational, um, you know, information. You know, you I've been, and you've been at these conferences too, both of you, where people will Will, will present scientific information, and in the hallway you hear people saying, "Well, that's not true," or they, I, "I don't believe that," or or whatever. And there's just this this um, this resistance to doing anything other than what worked for them. I think one of the keys will also be that as treatment becomes more integrated, and as the medical community has a much more direct role, that's going to, of course, continue to make the case for some of these medical interventions. So it's going to be difficult to sort of put the line in the sand in a more integrated system where these medical strategies are, are more widely accepted by, by the medical you know, physician community. Well, and, and um, Gary, the other thing is that uh, to take a look at some of the treatment strategies, um, I would say, you know, again, speaking from the standpoint of mental health, there there is a, you know, an embrace for those who need 
medications to take them as part of their recovery process. And certainly a lot of people who are living with or dealing with in recovery, you know, the, the out or, or, or the results of a, of a serious mental illness consider themselves very much in recovery and doing great. Um, uh, the other thing, though, is the medical, uh, the medical side of things need to understand that, that or to see the impact of things, the therapies beyond pills. I know in, in mental health treatment, um, something that I know um, Carlton Erickson said uh, at, a, at one of the um, addiction conferences, of course, he's a, uh, a pharmacologist, um, he said that he was astonished after, after seeing people two weeks at the Betty Ford Center who started to change, and they were not on medication. Something inside of them was helping to reprogram themselves or gear themselves, and um, you know certainly there are mechanisms that, and, and that Gary, can be conditioned. And Dennis, we'll be right back after this commercial, okay? Sure. And we'll let you finish your thought. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. This is Mary, and our guests today are Gary Enos, who's the editor of the Addiction Professional, and um, Dennis Grantham, who is editor-in-chief of Behavioral Healthcare. And, Dennis, um, I had to cut you off so we could go to break. Do you want to finish your thought? That's, that's fine. Um, I think that um, the, the, the final thought, I'm having a terrible time putting it together, but the, um, the idea that... Um, uh, psychological therapies or thought therapies or, or um, non-medication type therapies can have an impact on, um, on your well-being, on your recovery, on how you manage things. Um, I think that that, uh, I think the two often work together. And a lot of what seems to be, what, what people seem to struggle with, you know, it's easy to me- easier to measure the impact of a drug on someone's condition in a controlled way than it is to measure the um, the impact of a particular kind of therapy or a you know a cognitive therapy or a psychotherapy or something like that and I think that that's one area in which um, 
both mental health and addiction treatment are going to grow in terms of understanding better what the balance is between where medication has a role and where other therapies have a role. And, Mary, I think it's important that it not be looked at as an either-or. I mean, the, one of the things, I mean, I would say that the pharmaceutical industry, to some extent, has has not succeeded in this area. You know, the original discussions and marketing and, and proposals for these medications were that they work best in concert with mm-hmm. therapy. Unfortunately, after the approvals take place, I think a lot of that message somehow gets lost, and that may be a field issue, that may be a pharmaceutical company issue, it may be a little bit of both, but but I think people begin to see it as more of a polar opposite than what it really should be, which is another tool in the toolbox and one that's used best when other tools are used in concert with it. Mm-hmm. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, I think sometimes, I know for us, medication just provides a foundation on which you can build um, more skills, more coping mechanisms, and and uh, for some folks, a safety net. You know that um, that they can really access the the parts of the brain that that's most affected by their brain disease. So, sure, um, Mary. If I can interject one other thing too um, on the topic of recovery, I think it's so important. You know, when you've suffered from addiction or mental illness or something like that, you you have a perception of yourself, and and often Part of that process, I think, or, or in my, I've come to understand that part of recovery is sort of um, redeeming that old picture or that old story of yourself and turning it into something new. And um, I think that's where, if you're in a situation, um, you know, I've, I've seen and met and spoke with a lot of people who've, who've been in prison or been in trouble because of some mental illness or substance use problem. And um, yet when they came out or, or they, they, they somehow got worked through that experience and became a peer or helper to others, it was a, there was a whole process that overtook them that said, hey, this, this experience had meaning for your life. And it, it helped them to redefine what they were from that bad thing to something now that can be used for good. And I, I think that's a really core concept of, of the mental side of recovery. Um, I think that that's really, really important because um, people are more than their illnesses, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, they, and they have to reclaim, you know, their, their strengths and their, um, their loves and, all, and their hobbies and, and everything. And um, I'd like to give you each a, a chance to talk a little bit about your perspective magazines and websites and, and the things that you're currently involved in. So who'd like to go first? I'll start, I guess. Um, uh, I would tell people, first of all, that if they're not that familiar with Addiction Professional, uh, they should go to uh, com, which is our uh, magazine website. And uh, we publish six print issues a year, but with the website, we have much more daily and weekly coverage of issues in the field and opportunities for people to get involved. If they go to the website, they will see that we post our current print issue um, uh, in, in, on the site on the homepage. We give people an opportunity to subscribe to our free electronic newsletter through our website. The electronic newsletter comes out every Friday. 
Uh, the website also includes online exclusive features that don't appear in the print magazine, including a weekly top story that runs in our e-newsletter. And then we have bloggers on our website, including some clinical experts and some policy folks and people who have a particular degree of expertise on, on, a, on an individual subject in the field. Uh, we, we have many avenues for people to get involved, and uh, I just wanted to mention a few of them real briefly. The um, Addiction Professionals Plural group on LinkedIn has become a really great forum for discussion and problem-solving and clinical challenges and those kinds of issues among professionals. We're up to uh, more than 2,000 members now on the group, and um, it's a really good source for posing a question, solving a problem, getting some clinical advice or, or even programmatic advice from fellow individuals in the field. Um, I'm always very, very open to suggestions, comments, story ideas, writer ideas, etc. So I want people to always be in touch with us. The best way to reach me is through my email, which is uh, G-E-N-O-S, G-E-N-O-S at Vendome, V-E-N-D-O-M-E, G-R-P, which is short for group, dot com, Vendome, G-R-P, Com. And uh, I also want people to consider becoming a blogger for our uh, addiction professional website. We're going to be doing some website enhancements in, in the coming weeks, and we're especially looking for people who can speak to some of the clinical challenges in the field and to help our individuals become better clinicians. The goal of addiction professional is really to focus on clinical excellence, to tell people what's working in treatment and how to how to apply that to their everyday practice. And so we're looking for people who would be willing to submit a couple of uh, blog entries per month and, and have an opportunity to participate directly in our online forum. And then the only last thing I would say is that uh, every year we honor excellence in clinical care through our Outstanding Clinicians Awards. So in the spring of 2012, we'll be getting our nomination forms out for the fourth uh, version of those awards, which will be presented at next year's National Conference on Addiction Disorders, and I urge everyone to nominate people that they work with or have worked with who do an excellent job every day. We want to honor the really good work that's done in this field. Thank you, Gary. Dennis? Wow. Well, um, I should mention that Gary and I are... um, uh, sort of sister publications, um, Behavioral Health Care and Addiction Professional are both published by um, Vendome Group, and uh, Gary's publication is very much oriented toward the clinical audience of people who are actually there treating the um, addiction illness in the treatment room or with the individual, and um, Behavioral Health Care sort of takes a, a wider look at um, uh, the issues that surround um uh, the organizations and, and the leadership of um, people who, who um, run both mental health and addiction treatment uh, concerns. So um, we, are, we can be found at Behavioral Health Care at www.behavioral.net, and my, um, my email is dgrantham at vendomgrp.com, uh, very much the same way that that Gary said it, and and we too remain open to ideas. Um, we we cover uh, a lot more of the organization and management issues, leadership, design, 
we cover a good bit on public policy, funding, and uh, state-by-state decisions. And, of course, one of the things that we're always keeping an eye on is the level of public funding and some of the public initiatives that are, that are going on in the field. And, of course, over the last few years, since, since the high watermark in 2008, there have been huge cuts to mental health, uh, public mental health system and uh, public addiction treatment resources. And um, it's just tragic because society pays such a huge cost in these other hidden bills. So uh, I encourage people to tune in, behavioral.net, or take a look at the website and communicate when they wish. Uh, Give us a call. We're always listening. Thank you both so much for spending this hour with us. It just flew by, and um, thank you both for your publications because uh, we are an informed workforce as a result of your hard work. Thanks very much, Mary. Mary. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.